You're listening to Calvary Spokane's teaching series on Genesis called The Patriarchs. Would you stand with me as we begin by reading this? Chapter 29 of Genesis, beginning in verse 13, on through the end of the chapter. It says, As soon as Laban heard the news about Jacob, his sister's son, he hurried to meet him, and he embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his home. And there Jacob told him all these things. And then Laban said to him, You are my own flesh and blood. And after Jacob had stayed with him for a whole month, Laban said to him, Just because you are a relative of mine, you should work for me, should you work for me for nothing? Tell me what your wages should be. Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah. The name of the younger was Rachel. And Leah had weak eyes, but Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. Jacob was in love with Rachel and said, I'll work for you seven years in return for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, it is better that I give her to you than to some other man. Stay here with me. And so Jacob served seven years to get Rachel, but they seemed like only a few days to him because of his love for her. And then Jacob said to Laban, give me my wife. My time is completed and I want to lie with her. And so Laban brought together all the people of the place and gave a feast. But when evening came, he took his daughter Leah and gave her to Jacob, and Jacob lay with her. And Laban gave his servant girl Zilpah to be his daughter as her maidservant. And when morning came, there was Leah. So Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? I served you for Rachel, didn't I? Why have you deceived me? And Laban replied, it is not our custom here to give the younger daughter in marriage before the older one. Finish this daughter's bridal week, and then we will give you the younger one also in return for another seven years of work. And Jacob did so, and he finished the week with Leah, and then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. And Laban gave his servant girl Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as her maidservant. And Jacob lay with Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah. And he worked for Laban another seven years. But when the Lord saw that Leah was not loved, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. And Leah became pregnant and gave birth to a son, and she named him Reuben, for she said, "'It is because the Lord has seen my misery.'" Surely my husband will love me now. And she conceived again, and when she gave birth to a son, she said, Because the Lord has heard that I am not loved, he gave me this one too. And she named him Simeon. And again she conceived, and when he gave birth to a son, she said, Now at last my husband will become attached to me, because I have borne him three sons. And so he was named Levi. And she conceived again and gave birth to a son, and she said, This time I will praise the Lord. And so she named him Judah, and then she stopped having children. Let's pray. Father God, I pray as we look at this passage that your Holy Spirit would just give us insights, not only to the context and the story and all the rest, Lord, but we might begin to understand why this is even here in, in your word and what's the truth that you desire to speak into our lives. We depend upon your word, Lord, to, to guide us and lead us, and so we ask that you would just build us up in your truth, we ask in Jesus' holy name, amen. You may be seated. Um, this really represents a new chapter in the life of Jacob, uh, but it's a period marked by deception and disappointment and unrequited love, at least on the part of Leah. First, we find that Jacob, the trickster, the deceiver, the con man, gets schooled in the art of duplicity and double dealing by his more experienced uncle Laban. It would be only a matter of time, but over the next 20 years, as he lives with Laban and works with him, he learns not only to not trust the man, but also to outsmart him in the end. And his life will be dramatically changed as he goes through this transition from being the single guy to suddenly a husband with a wife, in fact, with two wives, and in a technical sense, actually four wives. Granted, there are only 
two actual wives, but the other two, the slave girls, Zilpah and Bilhah, that were given to Leah and Rachel by her father to be, uh, by, by their father to be her attendants, are what we simply call concubines. And a concubine is really nothing more than a secondary wife, except she doesn't have the status of the primary wife. And so in many cases, they were simply women who were really uh, brought into the household or into the bed to produce children so that the size of the family might grow. And the rest of the time, they were given the deeds of uh, really being uh, the mundane tasks around the house. This is something that really bears tremendous uh, resemblance to what we see in the Bedouin world even today. The word Bedouin simply means a desert dweller. And, and in the Middle East, there are lots of people who still live out in the desert as their forefathers have for thousands of years. And it's interesting, you can tell how many wives a man has by seeing how many tents there are in the encampment. Because he starts with his own tent. This is woven out of goat hair. And goat hair is an amazing product, if you will. Um, If you want to buy a goat hair tent, I think the going price right now is about $30,000. Because you have to weave them uh, from the strands of goat hair into this entire tent, which usually covers a couple of thousand square feet. They're quite... Actually, they're quite elegant places to hang out in if you've ever been in one. But they have the amazing capacity because in the heat, they close up and, or excuse me, the the strands open up and allow the breeze to pass through. So they're kind of naturally cooled. And when it rains, the goat hair will close up and as a consequence will keep the rain from being able to penetrate in the house. So when a Bedouin man marries a woman, the first thing she begins to do is weave her own tent because within that first year, they expect that she's going to become pregnant and have their first child. And as soon as she delivers the child, she sets up her tent and then she moves next door because after all, a guy's got to sleep. So, and so if you see a Bedouin camp with five tents, you realize that this is a very prosperous individual. He has four wives, which is the limit that you can have if you're a Muslim, uh, which I don't really get because Muhammad had nine, so I don't know where the fairness and all this is, but I guess that would go with being the prophet. But the bottom line is that, that this picture that we're watching here is really probably exactly what was taking place with Jacob and his wives. We can kind of picture this development because as a story develops, we'll see this kind of separation and segmentation. And so one of the benefits to Bilhah and Zilpah was that they probably got their own tent and maybe in time got their own servants. But the status of uh, a first wife was not something that was given to them. But what this passage also does is introduce us to something that's really troubling to many people when they start reading the Old Testament, and that's called polygamy. And the idea of polygamy, or what the word means, is you have many wives. Now, I think as we look at the various cases of polygamous relationships in the Bible, it becomes very clear why it's not a great idea. But the bottom line is this is something that we see throughout the Old Testament. I mean, Abraham took Hagar as a wife to bear a child, and eventually that didn't work out real well. And now we read about Jacob doing the same thing. We'll read later on in the book of Judges that Gideon has many wives, it says. It doesn't tell us how many, but he must have had many because he has 70 sons. And so, I mean, that the indication is that probably he had several And the kings of Israel and Judah, as far as we can tell, all of them had what we might call harems or large numbers of wives. David had at least 16, as far as we can tell. And of course, his son, who probably had this need to outdo his dad, had 300 wives and 700 concubines. And God only knows how many kids were running around as a consequence of those kind of unions. But, you see, some people have looked at that and they've concluded, well, it must be okay to engage in polygamy. I mean, that was certainly the conclusion of Joseph Smith and Brigham Young, which my dad used to always say actually means Brigham Young. He had 60 wives. Um, Yeah, well, it's not my, my sin, it's his. Anyway... But part of the conclusion is because we find that polygamy was actually a regulated behavior in the Old Testament. And in Deuteronomy 21.15, it says, If a man has two wives and he loves one but not the other, 
When he wills his property to his sons, he must not give the rights of the firstborn to the son of the wife he loves in preference of his actual firstborn. So if you were the first wife and you bore the firstborn son, your son was the inheritor of all the things. In other words, it became a double portion, it indicated. So if you only had two sons, you would divide your property into three parts, three parcels. Two would go to the oldest son and one to the younger and essentially, that's what Esau gave up materially when he was, uh, sold his birthright to Jacob. But importantly, I think polygamy was not simply a desire for more sexual partners, as many people often think. It was really uh, a response to a very practical need because there was in, in an agricultural or herding world, there's power in numbers. In other words, that the more people are part of your clan, your tribe, the more secure, the more powerful, the more ability to produce uh, uh, goods and so forth. And also, you couple with the fact there's a very high infant mortality rate, sometimes people would simply kind of keep the family growing ahead of the grim reaper and keep their numbers high. But it's interesting because in today's age, we talk a lot about, you know, the problem of population and we worry about overpopulation, yet people who study these things say that actually population has never been the cause of poverty. Depopulation has been the cause of poverty. There are certain countries in the world today, like Russia, for example, where the population is declining at a very rapid rate and it's causing all sorts of consequences because the ability of an economy to grow and to produce goods begins diminished as the number of people who can actually do the work becomes smaller and smaller. Part of the motivation which isn't discussed in our political realm, of bringing a lot of people from uh, the South and other places into America as illegal aliens is really to kind of supplement the, the population of our country because in America the population is decreasing as well. And long term, you know, not only does it reduce your ability to produce goods but, and, and consume those goods, but also it, it, you run out of people to pay my Social Security. So, you know, I mean, it's all good from where I sit. But the bottom line is that you look at countries that have really huge populations, even small places like Singapore and Hong Kong, they have some of the most densely populated areas in the world, and they have some of the highest standard of livings in the world. So there is no correlation between large population and poverty, but there is a large correlation between small populations and poverty. In fact, poverty involves so many different factors, it's hard to be simplistic about it. But we see that in the ancient world, these people understood this dynamic. They understood that you have to have people in order to have increased herds because the average shepherd can only really tend to about 100 sheep. And so if you want to have large herds, you have to have lots of people who are available to care for those herds, and many times those came from your own children. There was also one circumstance in the Old Testament, in, in the Mosaic Law, where actually plural marriages were mandated, and it's what's called a Leverite marriage. And what a Leverite marriage literally means, it comes from the word lever, which means to a husband's brother, and it's the idea that a woman would marry her husband's brother after her husband had died. In fact, in Deuteronomy 25, it, it outlined the principle pretty clearly. He says, if a brother, brothers dwell together, and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family. Her husband's brother shall take her as his wife, perform the duty of a husband to her, and the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of his dead brother, that his name may, might, might not be blotted out in Israel. So part of this was, is how do we keep our property in the tribal designation? Well, part of it is, is that in this woman, she's lost her husband, and she's probably pretty destitute, and some guy from another tribe comes by and says, well, I'm looking for a wife, and you look like you can cook pretty good, so let's get married. And suddenly, she takes all of the property that had been given to that part of that tribe and takes it over to another tribe. This was a way of ensuring that that didn't happen, and it stayed within that clan, within that family, and with the greater tribal grouping that they were a part of. But it was this, a very practical issue as well, because you didn't have 
single moms who were struggling to survive in a world where that was nearly impossible, but rather they would be taken into the family, and the name of the son would be continued on within the heritage of that tribe and that clan. But the primary reason that Pligus marriages were actually avoided in fact, we get the idea reading the Old Testament that everybody was running out looking for multiple wives, and the evidence seems to indicate quite the opposite. In fact, the only people who really sought to have multiple wives were those who had enough resources like kings and other rulers to be able to pay the cost that went with it. You can imagine having, I mean, I can imagine if I had two of my wife, you know, I would have to have several jobs. It just, it wouldn't be possible to keep up with the expenses that come with continually growing and increasing families. And so most people didn't look to have multiple wives. They, they looked to marry one person and keep her for the days of their life. And there was also some, some you might say, social dynamics that are involved as well. It's interesting that the Bedouins have an interesting formula for a good cup of coffee. They say a good cup of coffee has to have three ingredients. The first thing is it has to be as black as a woman's hair. Secondly, it has to be strong as a man. And thirdly, it has to be as bitter as marriage. And when you've got four wives, you begin to understand that, that principle. In fact, we see that illustrated through the text of the book of Genesis further on. But the reason why it creates that kind of conflict and that kind of tension is really kind of illustrated by what Jesus said about divorce and marriage in Matthew 19. In verse 4, he said to his disciples, he said, He who created them from the beginning, speaking of God the Father who made man and woman, made them male and female and said, For this reason a man shall leave his mother and his father and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh." So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let man not separate. And they said to him, why then did Moses command to give her a certificate of divorce and send her away? That's Deuteronomy chapter 24. In the first four verses, you can read about how that he gave a, basically said if a man finds something, some uncleanness in her, and theologians argue about what that might have been, it's suspected that he discovers after he marries her that she is not a virgin and she's been with other men. Well, basically, he can divorce her, but he had to write her a bill, a certificate saying that she was a divorced woman so that that she would be free to remarry and wouldn't be accused of being an adulteress or an immoral woman. And so Moses, he goes on to say, because of the hardness of your heart, Moses permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it has not been this way. In other words, he's telling us that the idea of more than one wife, whether it's more than a divorce or any other consequence, was never God's intentional plan, that he didn't design us for that kind of relationship dynamic, and therefore we can never really attain to God's best for us unless we stay committed in marriage to the same person throughout our lifetime. Which is why God, knowing that one day Israel would want a king, it's interesting what he said. In a world in where polygamy was fairly common and generally accepted, he says to them in Deuteronomy 17 that one day when you decide to have a king, he says, he shall not multiply wives for himself or else his heart will turn away. Now, it's interesting because what happened with Solomon his wives turned his heart away from the Lord. When we look at somebody like uh, Ahab, who we know that his primary wife was Jezebel, he undoubtedly had many other wives, but we saw the impact that she had upon his life and upon many of the kings of Judah and especially the kings of Israel. That there was a really a, a negative effect as they began to come under the pressure of responding to the wants and desires of these multiple wives. But even when we look at it from a New Testament point of view, with regards to the church, it's very clear that the idea of a polygamous relationship is not allowable because he says, for example, in 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus chapter 1, he said, the overseer, the elder, the pastor of a church, and also, he said, a deacon must be above reproach, the husband of but one wife. He can't be a man who is a polygamist. And again, in Ephesians 5.33, when he talks about the relationship of a husband towards his wife, he said, each one of you must love his wife and implies his one and only wife. He must love her with all his heart, soul, mind, body, and strength. So that the idea of having more than one relationship 
is not only contrary to the very way which God has wired us, but it really leads to the kind of tension and conflict that we see illustrated, as we will see more fully illustrated further on when we begin to look at what goes on in the life of Jacob and his family. So as we will see in chapter 30, there's a constant source of tension and conflict within Jacob's house. His family is in conflict all the time, and probably the best explanation for the sinful actions that we'll be looking to in the future that come out of his sons. I mean, for example, we find that Reuben, his oldest, has an incestuous relationship with one of his other wives. We find that Simeon and Levi engage in a murderous act against a people who they were supposed to be at peace with. Judah marries a Canaanite woman and actually ends up in a Leverite marriage in order to provide uh, an heir to himself. And Joseph, we find, is betrayed by the very brothers that he grew up with. And we look at these kind of dastardly behaviors in these children, and we shouldn't be surprised when we look at the environment in which they grew up in. Now, one of the things I I like to say about parenting that, you know, parenting is is just a naturally guilt-producing endeavor, you know, that if you're a parent, you have guilt. I mean, it just goes with the, it's a gift that keeps on giving, you know, as long as your kids are alive. And one of the things that, that I find is that Christian parents oftentimes have this misguided notion that they're going to produce sinlessly perfect kids. And the chances of that happening are someplace between zil and nilch. Because, you know, first of all, we live in a sinful world. Uh, You're a sinner, and your kids are sinners, and that combination guarantees that you're going to have kids that are going to disappoint your higher expectations for them, maybe on a regular basis realistically understanding that our children have to come to a personal, Holy Spirit-filled, born-again relationship with Jesus if they're going to live in accordance to the will of God. And many times, many parents have this kind of assumption that your kids are just kind of going to pick up the salvation gene at birth, and you're not going to really have to invest much in seeing them come to that kind of relationship. But the truth of the matter is, you need to understand that they're not saved until they are. That I remember my youngest son with a shock of realization when he was 12 years old, and his mom said to him, you know, you're not going to heaven just because we're Christians. And he, he told me honestly, it never occurred to me up until that moment that I would not go to heaven. I just figured my dad's a Christian and pastor, and my mom, she's a pastorette. You know, I mean, it's just, it just is a given, you know, it just kind of comes with the package. No, you need to know Jesus. And that was the thing that brought him to that point of conversion where he recognized, I need to be saved. Now, a lot of people saying, well, isn't the fear of hell the wrong motivation? No, it's probably the most common one used in the Bible, in the New Testament. Jesus spoke of it all the time as a very good reason why you need to get saved. Because if you don't get saved, you will go to H-E double hockey sticks. That's a guarantee. It's, it's a promise that God made. And so that response of faith that comes from saying, I know that I'm a sinner, and because of that, I am destined for eternal damnation. You know, as Paul said in Ephesians 2, that we are objects of God's wrath before we come to faith in Him. And the thing that changes all that is not something we do, it's simply asking Jesus to forgive us our sins and to come into our heart, to send the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, And from that point on, we began to see the motion and the working and the energy of the Holy Spirit on the inside beginning to work its way out into our daily lives. And this is the kind of thing that we need to understand that as we look at kids' behavior, let me say that I I think there are three major influences that are behavioral factors in kids. The first one is just... Uh, nature. I mean, genetically, your kids are going to pick up certain personality characteristics and dynamics that they, they have no choice in. They're born with them. And you, that's why you can look at your kids and see yourself in them. And no matter how much you regret that, you're going to see that in them. And you're going to find that they have certain capacities and certain uh, proclivities that really are passed down genetically. And you can't expect them all to be the same or have the same capabilities. And as a parent, you have to have that flexibility to let your kid become who they are basically programmed to be. But secondly, there's also the factor of environment. There's the nurture part of it, that 
how we nurture or the lack of nurture has huge impacts. It's one of the things we're seeing in our culture today that my greatest concern for the next, the younger generations coming up is they are neglected, not because their parents don't care, sometimes it's because they're too busy, but also because we have sometimes outsourced parenting to digital screens and digital means. And as many parents, one of my sons admitted to me, it's so much easier to give them the iPad. (laughs) It's so much easier at times. Yeah, it's easier, but at some point you don't begin to have that relational dynamic. And I was saying in his defense, he takes the kids out individually and spends time with them, so he's a good dad. But nonetheless, I'm not going to condemn him for giving the iPad. I I would do the same thing. Uh, But the whole idea is that there needs to be a nurturing relationship where you are transferring not only your love and value and acceptance of them, but also your values why you believe what you believe and what that means to you and how that impacts your life. Those kind of communications are essential if our children are ever going to grow up with a set of values. The idea that some people say, well, I don't want to force my values on my kids. If you don't, somebody else will. I mean, I guarantee it. They're going to get values someplace, and if it's not coming from you, they're going to pick them up from some other environmental setting in your life. I love the story of of William Coleridge, who was uh, the great... English poet who uh, he uh, had a, a friend come and visit him, a gentleman come and visit him, and he was going on at great length about, this friend was going on at great length about how that he didn't think children should be told what to believe, they should be allowed to just develop their own sense of God and truth and life all on their own, and we just need to feed them and house them and give them a place to sleep and clothe them, and other than that, they can discover what they want for themselves. And Coleridge said, that's fascinating. He says, would you like to see my garden? And the guy said, well, yeah, I'd love to. So he took him in the back, and his yard was nothing but weeds. There was no cultivation at all. And the guy said, well, this isn't a garden. He says, no, you don't understand. I'm just letting it find itself. (laughs) And that's essentially what you end up with kids. You end up with a garden of weeds. So the whole idea is that we need to nurture them, but there's a third capacity, not just nature and not just nurture. There's also this thing I simply call nonsense, and that's what sin is. Sin is a nonsensical decision on how to live your life. And that's a factor that we're born with. That's a dynamic that's in us inherently, expresses itself whether we want it to or not. Many of us get old enough and we look back and say, man, I wish I had made a different decision. Because we realize that it was so short-sighted and so blind and so foolish. But at the time, it just felt right. It's like, it was a, I remember years ago, there was a Olivia Newton-John song who said, if it feels so right, how can it be wrong? And I thought, have you ever heard of heroin? <laughs> I mean, seriously? Are you, you really, I mean, I, you know, she sold a lot of songs, but the reality is that there are a lot of things that feel right at the moment. They tickle us in some way that is pleasurable, but they are deadly. How do we know the difference? That's why the Word of God is there. That's why God tells us things that we should do and we should not do. It's not simply that God is trying to be this control freak who wants to have governance over every aspect of my life. Rather, he's like a good parent who doesn't want their kids to drive in the street with their tricycle because they realize it's not a safe endeavor. I mean, which of us would see our kid rolling out in the street with a big wheel? Do they still ride big wheels? That's probably yesterday, isn't it? That's how old I am, right? (laughs) But, I mean, when you see your kid going out in the street with your bike, and you're going to say, well, I just don't want to interfere because he's just kind of making his own way through life. Well, he'll make his own way to the cemetery really quickly because that's the whole idea that we try to withhold them from those things that are going to be harmful. We, we learn to say that dreaded word, no, many times. But in the end of the day, it's waiting to them to come to a point of maturity where they can understand the reasons and begin to make their own decisions and choose for themselves not to make those fatal mistakes. You know, I think about here, most of you have your kids in a wanted tonight, so I'm kind of preaching to the choir, aren't I? (laughs) It's like, you guys get this already, so I apologize. Maybe somebody out there on the web will, will, will get something out of this. I'm sorry for boring you with this stuff. But anyway, it's kind of like we find that Paul two times spoke about the signs of, of moral and spiritual decadence that I think were really evident in, the, in this family. 
He said in, in, in both Romans 1.31 and 2 Timothy 3.3, 3, 3, he talked about people who were uh, away from God, a long way from God. He said they were void of natural affection. Void of natural affection. The phrase actually is only one Greek word. It's this word stergeo, and it simply means to have a family affection. Uh, it's the idea that parents love their children because they are their children. You know how the mom shows up with a baby and saying, this is my baby, and I, I, I'm sorry, most newborns to me uh, need some time. <laughs> <laughs> My wife and I thinks my wife thinks I'm such a a Neanderthal because you know somebody say here's my baby and I'm going wow that's a baby you know and she's all gushy and, and, and all that sort of stuff about it but to me you know they they aren't good looking until they're at least nine months but the whole point is that there's a love that you have for your own children I, I thought it was so interesting that when we start having babies that the idea of changing a diaper was the most impossibly repugnant thought in my mind that if some mother had asked me to change her kid's diaper, I'd think, it's like asking me to dive into a sewage pond or something. I'm not, I'm not going near that thing. That's toxic waste. And then it's your own kid, and you hand her right to your mom. <laughs> no, I, I ended up changing a lot of diapers. At one point, my wife said, do you realize I've been changing diapers for five years straight? Uh, yeah, I guess I bought, ought to start helping. Um, but it's this idea that we do have this natural connection with our own flesh and blood. They're our children. We, we love them if for no other reason because they're our kid. That word is never used in the New Testament because it's almost like it's so understood that people would have a natural affection for their own family and loved ones that you don't need to tell people to do that. It comes naturally to them. What is strange is when they don't have that. And that's where the prefix ah, which means without in the Greek, astorge or astergeo in this particular context. It refers to a place where you're family, but you don't feel it. And when we look at this family of Jacob, you see there's a lack of this in this family dynamic. And I think that part of that is what polygamy does. The family was divided into four different sectors, each of them fighting to hold on and to, and to gain ground within the competitive dynamics of the family situation. That's part of the problem with favoritism in general, but particularly when we have partiality and favoritism in the home. And I, I say to parents all the time, you have to understand that if you have more than, than one kid, then you probably are going to discover that you find it easier to, to spend time with one than the other because one's more like you, you know, and we always know that one is always the better one, right? And yet there's an easy, it's easy to begin to show that or display that preference or that favoritism and neglect the other one and figure, well, my wife will pick it up. Well, you know, that happened in Jacob's home. His dad really liked Esau. His mom really liked him, and that worked out so well. You know, what I'm saying is that's not just limited to a couple of pathetic biblical characters. That's the kind of dynamics that we all have to deal with. We all have to come to that place that it's part of my responsibility, and God wants to nurture and develop in, within every one of us that kind of same love, not only for our own children, but even when he extended to spiritual growth in the family of Christ, that we begin to extend that same kind of love to our brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's where, you know, the power of God really begins to make a difference in our world. When we look at each other and we know that we come from all different kinds of, you know, we're, we're the whole smorgasbord, the whole, whole you know, uh, buffet of people is, is out here, presented in all sorts of shapes and flavors, and we find some people are easy to connect with and some people are more difficult. We don't have the same shared life experiences and all that kinds of stuff. We don't even know just simply where to start the conversation. And yet, we are challenged by the Holy Spirit to have the same love for each other. That, In other words, we begin to look at each person as being invaluable to the plan of God valuable to God and invaluable to His purposes, that we begin to have that kind of discipline of mind that we see that in one another. So that, you know, I think many of us have struggled with FOMO, you know, the fear of being left out. And, and, and it's, it's, a, it's an amazing thing how that when somebody disappears, we notice. 
Hey, where is so-and-so? And every one of us wants to be part of a community of people that, that have that kind of connectedness. And I know that numerically we're, we're way beyond the possibility of every one of us doing that with everybody else. But still at the same time, it should be something that we recognize as a value. That we recognize that when God causes our path to cross someone else's, it's not just accidental, but it's intentional. Which really kind of, I want to use as a lead into what I have to say next. Hopefully the last point I'll have to make in the remaining 14 minutes. You see, names in the biblical world, unlike in ours where we pick a name because we like the sound of it or because it's kind of the end list of names or it's a unique name that we give to somebody. But in the ancient world, the biblical world in particular, they were always descriptive. In other words, you name something based upon something that characterized them and made them unique in your world. And so when we look at Leah, it's interesting because uh, scholars disagree or differ on what exactly the name Leah means. It's such an archaic name. It can mean delicate and soft, or it can mean weak and weary. And I think that it's likely the second is the real meaning because we're told that Leah had weak eyes. Now, what exactly does that mean? Well, it could mean that she was visually impaired, which in the ancient world was a real liability. And let me put it this way, in Laban's mind is made her hard to marry off. It was very hard to have a daughter who had a disability and find somebody who in his mind was desperate enough to marry her. Because unlike our culture where we make those decisions primarily upon the externals, how attractive somebody is, they made those distinctions based upon how would this person be bring added value to our family and our household. It, you know, in a way, it was a much nobler perspective, but it could take on a sinful dynamic so that a father looks at his firstborn daughter and says, wow, who can I unload her on? And I'm quite convinced that's what Laban did with Jacob. You know, he, he throws this big party, the wine's flowing, and everybody's kind of, you know, and the, why, the women wear veils, and she goes in, she's brought into the room, and he's barely cognizant of what's going on, and not until he wakes up in the morning sober, he realizes, this is not what I had bargained for. I've got something I hadn't, and he's very obviously upset and angry. Um... I just think that Laban was going to have a lot of time finding a, a wife for Leah. Now, Rachel, on the other hand, it means you, and that, a you is a female sheep. And you have to understand, in a shepherding world, that's a term of endearment. In other words, I would say that Rachel was the cute little sister who was, you know, really had a great personality and was fun. And usually the older child is more disciplined and focused. You know, they're the ones you can count on cleaning their room and doing their homework. And the one that comes after that just wants to have fun all the time and be hilarious. And so, you know, you can see that this attention being drawn to Rachel and how she's just this sweet little thing. In fact, it says Rachel was lovely in form and beautiful. We might say where Leah wasn't so easy on the eyes, Rachel was really easy on the eyes. Considering the sinister dynamics within Laban's family, and I really mean that, I think that this was a very dark family because remember his sister Rebecca was a woman who was very practiced in lying and deception. He obviously was very practiced in lying and deception. This kind of stuff comes, this is learned. This is part of that corrupted value system that passed from parent to child. There had to be tension between Leah and Rachel. I can't imagine how there wouldn't have been. If you and I had been Leah or Rachel, there would have been tension between us. Yet Leah who is viewed more as a burden than a blessing, is the one whom God chose to bless most abundantly. When we think about the way that Jesus often portrayed the, the opposites of the kingdom, that the first will be last, but the last will be first, the greater will become lesser and the lesser will become greater. He, he gave these descriptions, and in a way, that's what we're seeing here. The one who is overlooked is the one that God looks upon the most. And there was no clear indication of God's favor in this culture in this time than the ability to bear children. And a woman who could bear four healthy boys in a row 
was a woman who everybody else looked back and saying, man, God has blessed her abundantly. And because her son was the first to be born, her son was also going to be the firstborn heir of the father who would rule over the household. And she was also the one who bore more children to Jacob than any of the other women did. The fact that Jacob never recognizes that speaks more to a failure of his character than of anybody else's. And I think that's one of the things that as I grow older, you become more concerned about how times you looked at situations and you, you kind of picked the wrong racehorse. You, you placed the wrong value in, in, in things that you shouldn't have. And the things that were most important or most valuable, you overlooked. And the things that you thought were cooler or hipper or faster or better, that's what you invested in. And I found that's true with, with people. It's, it's, it's true with just about every aspect of life that it really requires us at some point to many times ask before decisions are made, God, what is the best choice? Because I don't assume that I know what it is. I mean, I've often said, I never would have come to Spokane, Washington if God hadn't told us to come to Spokane. You know, it's just not, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, I'm sorry, I don't mean to be rude, it just wasn't on our GPS. I was looking something with a white beach, lots of warm sun, you know, th those kind of things with a ski hill just two miles from the beach. That would be, would be heaven on earth. In fact, I had an offer to go to a church like that, and God was very clear. He just whispered to me, no, <laughs> okay, okay, I get it. I, I won't lead with my, my feelings. Uh, but here's this woman, I, I mean, she's kind of a tragic story in many ways because her entire yearning is for the love and the companionship and the affection and approval of her husband. And, and it's revealed in the way she names her children. I mean, the first one is Reuben. It literally means, behold, a son. And she says, surely now my husband will love me. Surely he'll love me because she's thinking, this is what every man wants most of all from a wife, and I have just given it to him, and he doesn't even notice. And then she has a second child, and she names him Simeon, which means to be heard. She says, God has heard me. Because why? Because I am unloved. That's beginning to sink in, the, the thought that this man just doesn't love me. And then she has a third son named Levi, which means joined to. And she says, now at last my husband will become attached to me, will be joined to me because I have borne him three sons. Now he'll begin to want to be with me. Can you feel the loneliness of her life in all of this? I mean, it's, it's tragic. When I read it, I just, it makes me so sad. But it's interesting when we go through those kind of seasons how God somehow delivers us. Because she has a fourth son, and she names him Judah, which means praise. And she says, I will praise the Lord. I really see her going from despondency to rejoicing. That somewhere we're not told, but I just believe that God, in the, in the secret whispers of his own spirit to her heart, said, you know what? You have done a great thing, and you're going to be used greatly. And literally, she bore the child who one day would be the father of the Savior of mankind. So many times we look at those difficult seasons, those dry runs that we have to go through in our life, and we think, God, why are you not blessing me the way I, I need to be blessed? And we don't realize that God is at work in your life and doing things that you may not appreciate but someday are going to be the very seeds that bring forth something great and glorious for his kingdom. I just think at this point that she stopped looking to Jacob for love and affection and companionship which she knew she would never get and she began to focus upon the Lord. You see, in our world of comparison shopping, most of us would have chosen Rachel over Leah I mean, you get the sense that she was, Rachel was attractive and she was personable, that Jacob loved her his entire life. He worked 14 years to earn the right to marry her. And what woman in this room says, man, if I could meet a man like that? That kind of devotion. 
Because we have this culture that's addicted to the idea of romance, and we really identify with that kind of passionate relationship and desire. But when we look at it through the lens of God's bigger picture, God's bigger plan, what we can see how God used all of this to build not only the 12 tribes of Israel, the very nation of Israel, but ultimately he would create the foundations for the very kingdom of God. Yet much like their forefathers, these 12 brothers rarely got along. They often fight amongst themselves. Ultimately, they split apart into two separate kingdoms that are basically warring kingdoms for a large part of their history. The only time they began to work together was when they both had become so spiritually decadent that they found themselves on the same page of idolatry and sinfulness. But decades later, one of his sons would come to understand what Paul was talking about when he says in Romans 8, 28, that God causes all things to work together for the good to those who love God and those who are called according to his purpose. That God basically says, when you allow your life to be governed by me, when you allow yourself to follow my plan and my path, then I will do things in your life that you'll look back on and say, that was good. In fact, all things means that even things right now I look at and saying, God, why? Why are you doing that? I think about people I've talked to who have, have tragic losses in their life, and they sit back and go, God, why did you let this happen? And yet many times, if not every time, if they're looking, eventually down the road they realize that's how God redirected my paths. That's how God showed me what he wanted in my life. I don't want to go into detail, but the point is, my wife and I have discovered that's so true in our lives over and over again that I came up with this little saying that I repeat to myself on a regular basis, that everything that hurts me heals me, and everything that humbles me helps me. And I have to say that to myself sometimes when I'm in a situation, and I'm going, ouch, this hurts, and I have to come back and say, wait a minute, every time God has let me be hurt by something, it has brought healing into my life. It's like God splits open some, some septic sore in my life and says, we're going to drain the pus out of that, and we're going to heal that the way it's supposed to be. Believe me, I, I spent seven days with a staph infection in my elbow with them sucking tons of pus out of it every day. It was the size of a football. And it was not a pleasant experience. But it was so wonderful to, to get that infection out of my body because it was going to kill me. And we, you suddenly understand that when God does, does hurtful things, it's not because he wants to bring pain in your life. It's because, in fact, he wants to bring healing into your life in the same way when God humbles you by something. And you're forced to look at yourself and go, I guess I'm not that good. <laughs> I'm not that smart. I'm not that able. And sometimes, God, I'm just not willing. And that's why I end up here. When you are in that place, you realize that that's how God helps you the most. Because in your weakness, his strength becomes perfected in your life. You see, one day... One of Jacob's son discovers this. He goes through being sold into slavery, imprisoned. For 13 years of his life, he is at the bottom rung of the social order of the culture. The fact that most Egyptian slaves never survived more than a decade. And here he is 17 years later, and what happens? He's brought up out of prison. He's set up in the highest position. And when he has that moment of complete clarity, he says to these brothers, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. What happened with Joseph? He realized that God had a plan and a purpose in the whole thing. You see, the problem is we get, sometimes when we get hurt or offended by people, and I think that's a fairly common experience for human beings, we kind of 
hang on to that and, and grind in that place over and over again. We're like, we're like Samson. We become blinded and all we can do is grind out the grain going in a circle. We, we never, we're not going any place with our life. Nothing's happening. We're just caught in this whole cycle of just recrimination and anger and resentment and bitterness. And anytime we have started a conversation with somebody, we may start about talking about anything. And the next thing we know, we have digressed into talking about what they did to me and how they did it and when they did it. And, and it's this terrible place to live. I believe that Joseph spent a long time grinding out the corn of resentment. And one day, there came a moment of revelation. And he was able to sit back and say, wait a minute. God is not unfaithful. God doesn't forget. God doesn't leave me out here for nothing. God is a gracious, a merciful, loving God. There's something here. There's a purpose in this. You know what you and I need to be like? We need like that kid who was bit with a terrible case of optimism. You see, there are two twin brothers. They were exact in every way except one was an extreme optimist, the other one was extreme pessimist. And the parents were frustrated. What do we do? They took them to specialists and say, how do we moderate their personalities? And they said, we got a great idea. We're going to create two rooms. And they took the first kid who was pessimistic, and they put him in this room with every toy imaginable. And they left him in over there at night, and they said, there's no way that this kid can have find any fault with this. When they come back in the morning, they find the kid sitting on the floor amongst a bunch of broken toys saying, this cheap imported junk. And they said, well, obviously that didn't work. So they went to the next room where they had put nothing but horse manure and they left the optimistic kid in that room all night. And they came back in the morning and they opened the door. And the kid's running laps in the horse manure, reaching out and grabbing handfuls of manure and throwing it in the air and saying, woo! And they thought, he's completely lost his mind. And they got a hold of him and said, what are you doing? And he says, any place there's this much manure, there's got to be a pony someplace. <laughs> God's got a pony in your life. I love that story. <laughs> <laughs> Father God, I pray that you'd help us not to be recklessly optimistic. We want to be realistic about the dark and the difficult times, Lord. When things are hard, we want to be honest and say, God, this is hard and I'm struggling and I need a hand right now to reach down from heaven and lift me out of this dark place I'm in, Lord. But also as we do that, to be confident in our hearts that not only does he hear and he cares, but he will do that in the exact perfect moment that it needs to happen. I know that some of the people who are listening tonight are, are at home facing serious health issues and relationship issues and financial issues and they're discouraged and maybe even despairing. And I just pray, Lord, that they would not hear me, they would hear you, your Holy Spirit, speaking into their hearts and minds, and they would be encouraged because they know it's you who's speaking life and truth into their situation. We pray, God, that we would be a people who are not afraid to trust you. We ask this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen.